This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 353. It reminds me to be aware of the built environment and the choices that are made and what we think of as neutral choices might not be neutral to somebody else. And that's something to be mindful of. Hello and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. We're only a few days into the new year and I've already turned another year older. I hate how that works, Uh, but thank you to you if you were one of the dozens or hundreds actually that uh, sent me birthday wishes on Facebook yesterday. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, I'm here because I believe that uh, reading is pretty important. In fact, I'm writing a book about it right now with a guy named Jesse Wisniewski due out in August called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. I believe that if you want to achieve true success, in your business and in your life, then intentional, consistent reading is an absolute must. So the idea behind the podcast is to help you narrow this reading list and bring you the key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Now, today's author and book might be considered a little unusual for a podcast that focuses much of its time on topics like leadership and professional growth and that sort of thing. But if I had to categorize this, if I had to put it in a box, I would say that this one probably fits the personal growth category, especially when it comes to the idea of being more aware of your surroundings, of the world around you, how it got the way it was, appreciating some of those things, and understanding how others could maybe be a little bit better. The author I'm talking about is a podcaster in his own right. In fact, he has a hugely successful podcast called 99% Invisible. His name is Roman Mars, and his book is The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. I'll be asking Roman to share about both the conspicuous and inconspicuous aspects of design, the good and bad for cities of outdoor advertising. We'll dive into infrastructure and architecture and a bunch of other big words and lots more. In short, the book zooms in on the various elements that make our cities work, exploring the origins and other fascinating stories behind everything from power grids and fire escapes to drinking fountains and street signs. And with deeply researched entries and beautiful line drawings throughout, the book will captivate, I think, devoted fans of the show and anybody curious about design, urban environments, and the unsung marvels of the world around them. Hey, I mentioned a moment ago my own book coming out in just a few months, and I would just ask if this podcast has brought value to you in the last few years or a few months or a few weeks, if you would consider pre-ordering a copy of the book called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. In it, you'll learn about the scientific-backed benefits to reading, how to get the most out of what you read by applying it effectively, reading more in less time, and plenty more. You can find out all about it when you go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. Once again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. Roman Mars is the creator and host of 99% Invisible, that wildly successful podcast exploring architecture and design for which he produced the most successful crowdfunding campaigns for a podcast in Kickstarter history. Fast Company named him one of the 100 most creative people a few years ago, and he was a TED mainstage speaker in 2015. His new book, written with Kurt Colstead, is called The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. I am excited to have such a prolific podcaster on, on this one. Roman, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, the, the first time I saw you in person, it was, I think, when you were a keynote for Podcast Movement. 
several years mm-hmm. ago. Maybe that was yeah, Chicago. Yeah, I, I can't remember the city. But um, what I appreciated so much about that was your presentation was was less a presentation and more a performance. It was like getting to see you do the show almost from stage. So I really appreciated what you brought to that event. Oh, thank you so much. That's fun to do. Like we, I do that often, like where I kind of break apart the show and on stage, I put it together and people have this idea that that's how I do it in real life, but uh, it, it approximates nothing of how we do it in real life. <laughs> <laughs> it's just for show, but, uh, but it's fun to do regardless. Well, when it comes to uh, writing a book primarily focused on architecture and, and design, I would imagine the the stakes are pretty high. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. When it comes to the design of, of the book. Is, is that fair to say? Or was it, were you, was, were you under a lot of pressure there? Yeah, I, I would say it was our own pressure. Kurt and I in particular, yeah. we, were, we were thinking about it a lot. And um, yeah, when you do a show about design for 10 years, your designers are your fans, your kind of first fans. And uh, if they find something wrong with the book, and there, <laughs> there are things wrong with the book, don't, <laughs> no doubt, we, we did our best. And uh, yeah, they will let you know. And yeah, the, the design issue that was the biggest one was how do you take kind of a worldview that we've been exploring for 10 years on the podcast mm-hmm. and present it in a book form, you know, because the whole point of the show is that it's the audio story of design. Like it isn't about the aesthetics of design. It isn't about the, the normal things people think of when they think of design. It's about the underlying story. Right. And then and to take that into a book form and go like, well, how does it, you know, how does the format serve the material in a different way? And like, how do you, it's written extremely differently than the, than the show is. It's, mm-hmm. And it has all these illustrations. And I, one thing I was really careful about was that, um, or from the very beginning I knew, is that I didn't want photographs. I didn't want all these disparate kind of ugly looking things that didn't have a, a uniform look and feel. I wanted to keep it abstract. I wanted to keep it uh, evocative and not just showing you the exact thing that we're talking about. Mm. And so there's a lot of consideration when it came to the design of the book. Yeah. And some listening right now who are accustomed to be interviewing authors on leadership and personal development and marketing and sales and that sort of thing might be asking themselves, why, why this book? And I found that when, <laughs> when I read it, I think it fits if I were to give it a category, the personal growth category, because it made me want to be a better citizen. That's kind of you to say. That is kind of the point. I mean, it, it is a, a book about engaging with your built environment and recognizing that it represents a bunch of choices. It's not just there. It represents our values. Mm. And, um, and engaging with it and being aware of it and aware of those choices that are made for you and, and maybe made uh, at the exclusion of others, but on your behalf is, is something to pay attention to. And I, I do think that engaging with your built environment is a form of citizenry that is, is worth exploring. It's also just kind of a nice thing. I think it makes um, me a better person, like the show made me a better person mm. in just sort of being appreciative of the built world and the choices that are made and that there are stories and everything and that somebody smart solved a problem before I even know that I needed it solved. You know, like, (laughs) you know, like there, there's design elements everywhere. And that kind of makes me, you know, like appreciate the world a little bit more, a little, I've become a little bit more optimistic because of it. Yeah. You talk about design elements everywhere. I think growing up as a kid, it was just kind of like, this is all common sense, but it's only common sense in in hindsight, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) When you come up with it for for the first time, it is not common sense. It's genius. And then it becomes, because it is so genius, one of the ethics of the show or one of the central tenets is that it's invisibility is is a is a testament to its genius. The fact that mm-hmm. you don't notice a thing working is showing you how well it works because you never even think about it not working. You never think about a world without it. And that that's a thing that I find really uh, mm-hmm. fun about built world design. 
when it comes to the design of the uh, book itself, the inside of the book, mm -hmm. uh, speak to how you decided to sort of lay out the book and the idea, I think you used the phrase, creating a personal desire path. I'd never mm -hmm. quite heard it put that way. <laughs> yeah. So the book has, um, has a lot of different stories and sort of entries about the built world, but they always follow these themes and they kind of build on each other. So like it rewards you to read it in order uh, in the sense that they kind of each talk to each other, the different essays, and they give bigger ideas. However, one of the things we were like really looking for when it came to the book is, is to take, you know, I've done this podcast for 10 years. And the thing about it, about an audio format is it isn't like a skippable, perusable thing. You, you start when I tell you to start and the story is over when I tell you it's done <laughs> and you have to experience it that way. And if there was a piece of information that you really wanted about Ed Roberts and the rolling quads, when it came to the curb cut episode, you have to listen to the whole curb cut episode and like, you know, hear it and that sort of thing. But in the, in a book format, you can kind of forge your own path. You can like, just like in a park, if you have like a, the, the sort of sidewalk goes at a 90 degree angle where you have to go to the, the end, the corner, and then you have to turn right to, to sort of get to where you want to go. But where you want to go, you can see it diagonally. And so a lot of people often like make a desire path, like a beaten path of like the, where the, where the sod is worn down from, from people walking on it. That's called a desire path. And, and, and so the idea of a book like this is you can make your own desire path through the material and explore it. And it's a different way to engage with the types of stories that we tell as 99% invisible that we've been doing for 10 years, but never done in, in, a, in a book before. Well, speaking of those stories, the book is filled with dozens and dozens of stories and examples of the things around us that we often, uh, as you have intimated, uh, tend to ignore or just don't uh, notice. And I'd like to, to spend the rest of our time maybe hitting on uh, some of those if we, if we can. And I may test your memory since <laughs> <laughs> you might be <laughs> on some of these. But uh, one of the first things uh, I sort of jotted down as I uh, read through the book and wanted to get you to, to speak to was this phenomenon or idea of architecture. What exactly is, is architecture? architecture is kind of this infill architecture. So if you can imagine a normal sort of graded landscape where houses and businesses kind of fit the square of a grid, usually like something like a railroad track in an older city, it doesn't follow the grid. It predates it. It's, things are built around in a different way. But as uh, if something like a railroad track goes into disuse, that scar is still there. So the tracks mm -hmm. go away, but the line is there. And if the property is valuable enough, somebody will put something on it, but it'll be at the sort of canted angle of the, of where the, tracks used to be. So you can see this in parts of Berkeley where the, the, the train goes through or, and then parts of it, other parts of it went through like different places with more rail lines. And now they maybe have one, you know, that kind of brings stuff in. You'll see like these, these buildings that, that follow where like tracks used to be or trolley cars used to be. And if you notice a building with a really kind of odd angle and you're like, why is that the way that is? <laughs> um, it could be because there was once something there before. And then therefore it, it kind of filled in the space that was available. You know, I think of things like uh, traffic lights. I, I said a moment ago that, you know, growing up, it was kind of like, well, of course it's the way it is. How else would it, would it be? And, and traffic lights are one of those things where you kind of think, well, they're just kind of the same everywhere, aren't they? But that's, that's not true, not only in places like, I think it's Japan, but maybe mm -hmm. even here in the States somewhere, there's right. one that's not the way you think, right? 
Yeah, my my favorite traffic light is in Syracuse, New York, and uh, this is at a time period when when traffic lights were were pretty new, kind of at the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, and they were just sort of getting to that configuration where uh, red was on top of yellow, was on top of green, and in this particularly Irish neighborhood of of Syracuse, New York, uh, they were deeply offended by the unionist red being over the Republic green. And they just found that very upsetting. And so they threw rocks at it and then they would, they would reverse it and they, they keep messing with it until finally the city and then ultimately the state relented. And, um, in, in Syracuse to this day, there's, there's a commemorative, um, traffic light where the green is on top of the red and it is just that is just the way it is and i think of it as the most interesting traffic light and one of the things i love about that story in general is that it's like these things that we think of i mean one of the things i think is interesting is is, is this like why is red on top of green anyway like it's something like like somebody did make that decision and we just kind of settled on it and that's one of those things and that's fine right. and so the, but it didn't have to be that way we kind of rolled the dice and it became that way and that's the way it is <laughs> but but then the other part of it is when it comes to this place like most of us i think who don't have those associations with those colors would have no kind of idea that that would evoke any emotional reaction whatsoever in anyone <laughs> and um but it evoked a huge emotional reaction there and then that emotional reaction built and it, it it reminds me to be aware of the built environment and the choices that are made and what we think of as neutral choices might not be neutral to somebody else and that's something to be mindful of i mean this is a fun story but but they're definitely not as fun stories about the idea of what we think of as neutral or what i might think of as neutral, not being neutral in some places. And mm. so, um, so I think that's a, a good example of a, of a, of something in built environment that had values embedded in it, but we didn't even <laughs> notice it most of the time. It was intriguing uh, to me connected to that Roman to learn of parts of the world where they're experimenting with, you know, no signage or no traffic lights or no lines on the road. Uh, talk about one particular phenomenon that, that kind of happens when you strip all that away. Yeah, so this is a movement called Naked Streets, and uh, they're and the logic is this it's like that we get complacent about signs and signage and there's like smoothness to the to the design of roads and systems that make us not pay attention. The logic is if you strip away all that stuff and you have to sort of make eye contact with the other driver at the other corner or if the person crossing and you're paying careful attention, that agitation makes things uh, safer. It's not a good feeling when you're driving. Anyone has done this. Like that's one of the reasons why, like, for example, in the U.S., like roundabouts aren't really, they kind of work on the same principle. Roundabouts aren't really huge here in the U.S. There's a, there's a couple of cities where they have tons of them, but but mostly they're not. Mm. And um, because we like that smooth flowing, like go straight through traffic, like mediated through machinery and not through actual human negotiation. Um, but roundabouts are quite a bit safer than, than traffic light intersections because they make you uncomfortable, because they make you slow down. And naked streets is, is a similar phenomenon. And they've shown in in, in many instances to be to to be safer there there definitely been some incidents in which they weren't mm. you know like bad things happen in in those places too and then there's a little bit of thought of like as you get used to naked streets you could also become complacent there so like over time it could become less effective but it's a really interesting idea and it's counterintuitive and it's it's good to experiment with these things to to keep us safer because roads you know we've ceded the territory of roads to cars for 100 years mm. but there is nothing about the original design of roads or roads in our lives 
from millennia before that, that would indicate that that's the case. Like they used to be, you know, trolley cars were on them, trains were on them, cars were on them, humans were on them, horses were on them, carts were on them. And so it is worth thinking about cities having sort of more uses for roads and, and naked streets is kind of one of them that allows you to experiment with that. Yeah. For, for decades, it's really been when it comes to roads, a driver first mentality. I, totally. I remember being, you know, in my twenties and frustrated in anything but a car that was ever on the road as if, you know, yeah. it's me first. <laughs> exactly. And and, one of the, and that's sort of like, a, that's a value that we decided that roads were going to be like that, that mm-hmm. cities were going to be built around that. And, um, and it's one of those things that if you, as you enter into the world, you could, you could say, well, that's just the way roads are, you know, like, you know, that doesn't represent any type of value, but it really does. Like we've just preferenced cars for a really long time. And right now I think we're finding interesting experiments where we're not, we were trying different things out and, uh, and people are finding that cities that don't rely on cars have uh, different qualities of life and that, that some people value in different ways. And, and especially with COVID, you know, people are finding that getting out into the road and closing down roads. So we have more space to gather, but be socially distant is a, is a thing worth experimenting mm-hmm. with. And, and so there's all, there's all kinds of things to do with roads that we just, we chose them to be car places for a really long time. And, uh, it's worth thinking or worth noticing that that was a choice. That isn't just nature, right? <laughs> it, is a, it is a choice and we can make it, we can choose different things, you yeah. know, and it, it's, it's worth having the conversation to decide what's important to us. You mentioned uh, roundabouts earlier. I think it's Carmel, Indiana with the distinction mm-hmm. of having the most, my brother, my younger brother lives just outside Carmel and I usually stay with him when I visit. So whenever I do, I get to experience uh, and, and used to be frustrated by the, <laughs> those roundabouts, but I realize the, the benefit now. Um, shifting from, from streets, what about when it comes to our buildings, uh, the materials that we use to build? I mean, it was wood, then it was bricks, then it was concrete. Wood's kind of making a bit of a comeback in, in some ways, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, in particular, like as we're becoming more aware of uh, of climate issues, like concrete is a huge driver of climate change. It, mm. it is it requires so much energy, so much carbon to make concrete. You know, and as a material, it's you know it does it it does well. It's like made on site. It, it does it has all these great qualities to it. But wood is making a comeback because wood is not just wood. Like wood is a technology and they've been working on wood. It might seem funny <laughs> to people, but one of the things that they're doing is creating these cross laminate woods, uh, which are essentially like, I don't, you could kind of think of it like press board, but it, you know, it's basically like it, it takes a lot of different wood, presses it all together. It makes it like incredibly hard, incredibly good structurally. And uh, it's also pretty fireproof, you know, or, you know, as fireproof as, as, uh, as concrete certainly as it, it kind of makes a little shell on the outside if it catches on fire, it, it, it does well under fire. And I think that was one of the things that made wood go out of fashion mm-hmm. in cities was, was fire and, and then concrete sort of rose from that. But now we've made wood better. And so there's, the, so this technology is called mass timber. I, I actually honestly don't remember why it's called, <laughs> but, but um, they've been trying to make, you know, skyscrapers out of, out of wood mm-hmm. and, and uh, it works and it's um, it's an interesting material. It's, it's, it's a carbon sink. And uh, if you use it right, it can be done really well and make for beautiful uh, buildings. And uh, it's worth watching, you know, because buildings have a, have a feeling to them that they are what they are. Like we figured out how to build a building like a long time ago. And the truth is, is that uh, buildings are a technology and we constantly innovate and it's worth innovating. And I think Mass Timber is an interesting innovation. 
And some of those cities and buildings are covered with things like ads and billboards. And (laughs) for a lot of good reasons, some have moved to sort of turn the clock back and and take some of that away. But then in some cases, we find that those billboards and and, and such have, have covered other serious problems. Yeah. So this is a case in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where there was a billboard ordinance. And in fact, all outdoor advertising signs mm. were taken down. They even like uh, signs outside of shops, you know, things like mm. that. They really wanted to sort of strip everything down and uh, and make it not just this visual noise, like reduce all the visual noise of a person there. And a, a, a couple of cool things happened and, and, and maybe not so cool things. Mm. One is, is that because people had to figure out new ways to designate these spaces, they started painting all the buildings, all these different colors. <laughs> and so the city got extremely colorful in, in an interesting way. And, and then the other thing was all these billboards, it turns out that they were, they were hiding lots of different uh, slums that, mm. that were not well kept. They were hiding warehouse you know, windows or covering up warehouse windows where people were sleeping inside the warehouses and, mm. and working at the same time. So these illegal working conditions. And, and it made the city have to kind of deal with these mm. things because you could no longer ignore them. They weren't behind all these signs. And so the experiment was a really interesting one. And they've started to reintroduce a few more signs or, or like you know, like they'll put an advertisement in if the company will sponsor the bus shelter and keep it, you know, um, keep it up Mm -hmm. and uh, stuff like that and trying different stuff. But, um, you know, it's, it's really kind of a, uh, it was an interesting, cool thing that we'll, we'll sort of see how, you know, what it, what it plays out to be. I thought that was ingenious, that that idea of uh, having companies come in and sort of sponsor the area and and, and, and agreeing to to help keep it clean and looking looking, uh, like it should. Um, How are we doing on time? Am I okay with a couple more questions? You are. Awesome. Uh, Give us a bit of insight, if you would, into your history with regard to the impact that others' books have had on your life. Uh, How has the habit, uh, assuming it is one, of, of reading consistently and intentionally played a role? Well, I don't have many aphorisms in my life, but the one thing I tell my kids is just always carry a book. Mm. It's it's just the most important thing you can do for yourself in your life is like have something to read at all times <laughs> and you will never be alone and you'll always have something to do. I guess now that they have phones, you know, like it's not the same as when I was a kid, but I was a big believer in always carrying a book with me. You know, this book and, and the whole show, 99% Invisible, was inspired so much by a book mm. called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. Books have had just a profound impact in my life and changed my life in all these different ways. Mm -hmm. And so if it wasn't for, in particular, people pushing books on me. So my friend Julie Gordon gave me this book uh, and I was not really interested in design. I was at the time, I was still like working on being a scientist. You didn't study design, right? I did not. I did not. But I I really love the way a a designer's eye like looked at the world. Mm. And I was so intrigued and it really fit in with the way that I it was fun to put on those glasses. You know, is it fun to look, take that worldview? And I, and I took that into the show, you know, many, many, many years later, but it, it folded into me. Mm-hmm. I think it's books are the best way to like really take in uh, a certain type of information. Like it sits with you in a, in a way mm-hmm. and changes you because you're putting something into the process of gathering that knowledge. It's not being fed at you, you know, like, you to, <laughs> like read it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a big reader of re-reader of books, but the one that I've reread um, the most is, is this one called Moon Palace by Paul Auster. I, it's just a fiction book that I like, and it, it's the best example of 
of describing what it feels like to to sort of give up in a certain type of way. And I, I've, I've, it just really resonated with me to sort of that he captured something that I never saw captured before as a grow, as a kid growing up poor. He had a, had a way of describing how you sort of bring yourself into oblivion in a, in a way that I had never seen. And, and so every once in a while I revisit that book. But, but yeah, I, I love books. They're the greatest. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, finally, uh, Roman, uh, what would you say is ahead for you and your team that you're really looking forward to and excited about anything that uh, is around the corner that we should know? We're launching a new series that uh, our, one of our producers that have been with me for a long, long time, Katie Mingle, has been working on about uh, homelessness and the sort of the process mm-hmm. of, of like what a, how a city deals with, every city deals with homelessness. And uh, I think it's just like brilliant and amazing. And so the team worked on it, but she really took it on mm-hmm. and uh, I have very little to do with its production. And one of the great things about having a show that grows and working on things that get bigger and bigger is that other people do things and you love them. You love the work, you know, in a way that you can't love your own work. Mm. You can just be a fan in Mm. a way. And so this, I think this series is probably the most important thing we've ever done. And it's so good. And I'm so excited for people to hear it. Other than that, you know, like we put out a book this year, we've been all spread across across the country doing the show. Like I would love a period of like, just doing the show well you know what I mean? like, and just like that no in, no innovation <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be nice <laughs> well the book again from roman and kurt is called the 99 percent invisible city a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design this was a real treat for me roman as a podcaster these last seven and a half years to have someone like you on the show is a real treat so thanks for being here and sharing about the work that uh, that you're doing oh it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me if you are intrigued by what you heard and would like to dig in a little more deeply you can do that at my website i've created a page just for this episode that can be found at read to lead podcast.com slash 353 for episode 353 In fact, you can find the show notes for any episode you enjoyed by visiting the website, readtoleadpodcast.com, then adding a slash, and then the three-digit episode number. As a lover of books, and I would imagine someone who wants to get the most out of what they read, I encourage you to check out my upcoming book, available for pre-order right now, readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. We'll take you right to the book's Amazon entry. Otherwise, you can go to amazon.com and search Read to Lead. The release date, by the way, August 31st. In the coming weeks, we'll be checking in with authors like Joanne Lublin, Mitzi Perdue, Reggie Williams, Pamela Fuller, Michael Gelb, Todd Henry, and next week, it's Alex Kantrowitz and his book, Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That wraps it up for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.